Pints with Jack, Season 3, Episode 25. Tale We Have Faces, Part 2, Chapter 4, Barefaced. Good morning and welcome to Pints with Jack, a podcast where two enthusiastic C.S. Lewis amateurs get together, share a beverage, and discuss a work of C.S. Lewis. This season we're reading Till We Have Faces. My name is David, and I'm joined by Matt, Barefaced Bush. <laughs> you could have said Matt's Till We Have Faces Bush, or Matt, Matt developing his face Bush. <laughs> Matt, have you seen my face Bush? <laughs> I take it back. That's that's the official one. <laughs> I like that one. <laughs> Matt, have you seen my face, Bush? That's great. Well, for the drink of the week, because I'm, well, drinking again, I'm having a margarita. It's party time because we have reached the end of Till We Have Faces. That's, well, let's pretend that that's what it is. <laughs> well, I am drinking some of my engagement scotch, which I can't remember if I mentioned it. I bought a bottle of Glenmorangie La Santa the day after I got engaged just to make the entire wedding planning preparation as smooth as possible. And uh, I never quite expected it to be in this way with everybody having to stay at home. But uh, it has nevertheless served me well. I have that same glass. I have a few of those. They're cool glasses. It actually belongs to my housemate. I thought he had stolen yours. (laughs) I have so many I wouldn't have noticed. I had three different people get me gifts of them, so I have eight now. (laughs) Well, so we can toast. What is the quote of the week? I chose two. I think I'm just going to do the first one, and now I've teased the listeners without reading the second one. So this first one was near the end of this chapter, and it's when she is meeting, allegedly, or at least I perceive to be, we'll talk about when we get there, like the god of the mountain in her own personal way, the husband of Psyche, um, the one that she kind of didn't get a chance to meet. That's what I think. So as she's meeting, this is what she says. I was being unmade. I was no one, but that's little to say. Rather, Psyche herself was, in a manner, no one. I loved her as I would once have thought it impossible to love, would have died any death for her, and yet it was not, not now, she that really counted. Or, if she counted, it was for another's sake. The earth and stars and sun, all that was or will be, existed for his sake. That is... That's powerful. This is the same Orwell who manipulated, used people, was jealous, possessive. And now she realizes she's no one. Even Psyche, the person who is everything in her, her mind, her world identity, is actually no one either. And then if she's something, it's only in relation to him. That is a heck of a transformation. You want to talk about being unmade? There we go. I have many thoughts on this quotation, but we will deal with that when we hit that part of the text. Did you prefer that one or the next one? But I, the next one's like the prominent thing at the very, it's just for people to know, it'll be like the last sentence of the book. So we'll get there. But I just felt it was, I don't know. It was the more obvious choice. I would suggest uh, bring it up when we get there. Okay. Well, with that then, David, cheers. Cheers. And I thank you for not making fun of me for drinking a margarita. I was playing poker online with a buddy last night. And, his, and we were Zooming and his fiance comes in and we're just chatting and he's like, what are you drinking? I go, margarita. And then her and I start talking about this Amazon movie, Modern Love or TV series. And he goes, Matt, you're drinking a margarita. You're talking about chick flicks. I think we need to get you back to the scotch and like the Sopranos or some other good movie or West Wing. I'm like, you know, I just like to unwind in my own ways. 
You are such a carry. A carry? What is this from? <laughs> uh, isn't that the main character from Sex and the City? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, what, what are you talking about? What's, what's, what's Sex and the City? I don't know what you're talking about, David. <laughs> I'm more of a Miranda. So we got quite a lot to get through, but there was one thing that we wanted to tell everyone. Yeah, this is your last chance to get questions in for Andrew Lazo. Again, as I said last time, the brilliant uh, scholar on Till We Have Faces, listen to his part one summary, lessons learned, analysis. You're going to have a lot more questions after you do, so submit them to us. Probably the best way is join our Slack channel by going to our Patreon and supporting us at $5 a month. Shamelessly, I'm throwing that out there. It's actually been taking off really well. David and I are very happy with it. It's a wonderful community. Just great individuals actually sharing not only Lewis stuff, but Christian stuff, their own personal journeys, and even funny things like the Cuomo brothers saying no. And uh, a me- essentially a meme, more or less, a video meme of David answering whether he ever will consider chronological order respectable. Never. Never. I chuckled so many <laughs> times. I've watched it like 10 times. nerd okay (laughs) we have a lot of material to get through today so let's just jump in to chapter four orwell says her complaint itself was the god's answer she meets the fox who blames himself for her mistakes he takes her away to a vineyard with walls of living pictures there she sees one of psyche considering suicide one of her sorting out seeds while being helped by ants another of her gathering golden wool of rams, another of her walking in the desert, and finally, of her walking down into the underworld. The fox leads her to a courtyard where she falls at Psyche's feet. Psyche takes her to the edge of a large pool in which she sees the reflection of not one, but two Psyches. She hears the voice of the gods say, you also are Psyche, and the vision ends. Four days later, Orwell dies, while writing about that vision. Arnhem concludes the text, praising his queen and his desire to send the book to Greece. Oh, we have a lot in this chapter. Yes, and we left the last chapter on something of a cliffhanger because Orwell was having a vision and she was deep inside a mountain and presenting her case against the gods before a judge and a great number of shadowy figures. And after she'd read her complaint again and again, the judge stops her and asks her if she has received her answer. And she says that she had. So Oral begins this final chapter with an explanation. She writes, the complaint was the answer. To have heard myself making it was to be answered. And she recalls something that the fox used to say when he was teaching her Greek. And you'll quite often see this quote shared on the internet. Child, to say the very thing you mean, the whole of it, and nothing more or less or other than what you really mean, that's the whole art and joy of words. It's a very uplifting statement. But Orwell regards this as just a glib saying, and she says you can't talk about the joy of words when the time comes at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech which has lain at the center of your soul for years, which you have all the time, idiot-like, been saying over and over. And as I said, in the courtroom, Orwell just kept repeating her complaint again and again. And she now realizes that she's been doing this deep in her soul for years. Yeah, that's, 
That was interesting to me that these words have been laying at the center of her soul for years. So there was an uncovering, we've we mentioned this in the last episode, that needed to happen for her to even recognize it, hear it, get to that. Going back to that, this is the core. You have to get into that core of who you are, your desires, that authenticity. And so there's there's something there that I think Lewis is really hitting on. Yeah, and throughout her book, Orwell has complained that the gods don't communicate clearly. <laughs> but now she says this, I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out, so the nonsense that we've been repeating to ourselves, till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? Wow. I remember when I was interviewing Emily Laporte, I was, this is where till we have faces is in here. And you ask yourself, what does this mean with a title? And I, I, I loved her answer, but it's interesting being able to come here now, having gone through this book. And I, I, what I make of this is what we've been talking about this whole time, that until we have faces is getting to that true, authentic, getting to that core of who you are, your, your desires. And I really liked what you said on the last video when I asked you your thought of authenticity now, because authenticity, true self, isn't always the good. It's the good, the bad, the ugly the desires, again, both good and bad. And it's just getting to that core of who you are. That can be your neediness too. And that's what she's, that's what's happening here. She's getting to that. She literally, that was what her monologue more or less was. So that's what she, she's now finally getting to that. She's having her own face, getting bare face. And she's saying what she means to the gods. And that's how I see all of this playing out. But it took a journey, a heck of a journey of being unmade, as we're going to see later, that I did in the introductory quote. We have to be honest. We have to be truthful. We can't come to the gods. We can't come before God with a mask on. Until that mask comes off, how will we ever be able to truly speak or hear God? And how often do we actually come to God vulnerably? I mean, I was in confession three weeks ago, and the priest said to me, like I was talking about a few of my bigger struggles. And he goes, have you like genuinely named these and brought these up to God? Have you, when you pray the rosary on a certain decade, do you just name this out loud and bring it to him? Like, I desire this to be gone. This is in, in the fullness of it. And I'm like, you know, not really. I just kind of go to prayer in general and keep it vague. And I don't know if I fully named that I want this gone. Um, yeah. And I don't know if we, we fully name our desires and the, even the ugliness in us fully to God or to ourselves, because we've built up these false selves to somewhat avoid that exact thing. And I think we're going to see that a change doesn't happen until we do. Yes. Now, Orwell hears a voice, is her father, the king, and he says, best leave the girl to me. I'll lessen her. So it appears that her father wants to be in charge of her punishment, which is, you know, nice. Uh, but fortunately, she then hears the fox, and he seems to be addressing the judge, and he uses a variety of names for the judge. Minos, Radamanos, Persephone, Persephone. And you know what I'm going to ask here, Matt? What any of those mean? Yeah. Not a clue. <laughs> now, honestly, I think I just skimmed over those words. Well, Persephone was the wife of Hades, the god of the underworld. And Minos and Radamanos, Radamanos, Radam, Radamanthus. <laughs> Good grief. Can't pronounce it. Uh, they were both judges of the dead. So it's basically some kind of ruler of the underworld. If you want to know the honest truth, when my eyes were skimming over that and I saw Minos, my eyes thought Mimosa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Dude, you got a one-track mind at the moment. <laughs> Sip your margarita and be happy. It's been like 60 days since I had alcohol up until these last couple of weeks. So yes, I have a single-track mind. But anyway, the fox, he comes forward to try and take the blame. He says, I am to blame for most of this, and I should bear the punishment. I taught her, as men teach a parrot, to say lies of poets and only it's a false image. I made her think that ended the question. I never said, too true an image of the demon within. And then the other face of Ungit, she has a thousand. Something live anyway, and the real gods more alive. Neither they nor Ungit, mere thoughts or words. And it's not entirely clear to me what he's saying, but I think he's saying that the gods were an image of the worst parts of the human soul, maybe. And at the same time, he seems to speak of other real gods who are even more alive. That's exactly what I was about to say. I was almost going to cut you off before you did. Because I never, I didn't notice that until you put it out there. So is you're just, I guess it's highlighted is what I'm trying to say. When you're reading it with a bunch of page words on a page, sometimes you miss some things. But when it says, and then the other face of Ungit, something live anyways, in the real gods more alive, suggesting this Ungit we keep hearing about might not be representative of what we think of God. And that there's, there's something else there. And I, I think you're onto something with it's maybe the worst part of the human soul because she is Ungit, and we're going to see later, she has to be made beautiful, and that Ungit in her has to be made beautiful. And so I think our my idea of Ungit being the, the true God might not be fully true. Um, there's something else there. I think you're right. The fox says that he never told Oral why the priest or the people got something from the temple, which he himself never really got from his pithy philosophy. And this takes us back a couple of chapters. Remember the scene when Orwell is confused by the consolation of the old peasant woman when she's before the Ungit stone or the people at the end of the springtime liturgy. Yeah, and why she chose the Ungit stone rather than that fancy new Greek stone that was created. Mm-hmm. And the fox says that he was ignorant of his ignorance. And he seems to imply, I think, that there's a mixture of truth and falsehood in the house of Ungit. But the question is, What's the part of it that's right? And I think it's when the fox says this bit. He says, The priest knew at least that there must be sacrifices. They, the gods, will have sacrifice, will have man. Yes, and the very heart, center, ground, roots of a man, dark and strong and as costly as blood. And once again, I'm not entirely clear about what he's saying, other than the fact that the gods want sacrifice. They want uh, the sacrifice to be man himself. And to my Christian ears, it's very hard to hear that without thinking of Psalm 51, where the psalmist says, the sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken, contrite heart, O Lord, you will not spurn. For me, it makes me think of Lewis in his constant emphasis in mere Christianity and the great divorce of dying to yourself, of going to Christ and giving all of yourself up, not part of you, not some of you. You go completely. Nothing gets into heaven that hasn't died. And so that means us as well, ourself has to die. And that's what I got with that. They will have sacrifice. We'll have men. And so I think there's all, there's what you said. I think there's a lot of stuff wrapped in there. But there's also this dying to yourself. Because that's just a very big Lewis theme throughout his other works. Which he steals from St. Paul. Yes. And speaking of St. Paul, in Christ-like fashion, uh, and quite opposed to her father, Uh, The fox even asks that the punishment should come on him instead, 
And St. Paul says something very similar in Romans about the Jewish people. He wishes that he could be cut off if they were only be included. And the fox says, send me away, Minos, even to Tartarus, if Tartarus can cure glibness. Oh, don't ask me, David. <laughs> don't do it. So, Matt, as you know, Tartarus is the prison of the Titans. And it's also the abyss of torment mentioned in Second Peter, where the fallen angels are sent. I would love to have asked throughout all of this how much you knew off the top of your head and how much you Googled. Uh, Tartarus, I did know because I actually recently read Second Peter. I will say after doing the quizzical papers with you, I trust a lot more of it you just know off the top of your head. <laughs> no, I still cheat a lot with Google. Did you, did you think though in this part where we're talking about the fox asking for forgiveness, we, you and I have had lots of conversations, well... I don't think we've actually gotten too deep in it, but whether Orwell's guilty or not here. And this is interesting how the fox is taking some blame for her lack of being able to see or uh, perceive the experiences that she had properly. And so this lends me to give her more sympathy, kind of where I was in the beginning of this. And Lewis does really place an emphasis on that in mere Christianity in that chapter, like raw material or something where we're judged based on what we do with the material we were given. But at the same time, I'm still in the camp that she had agency because Psyche was also trained with the fox and Psyche made some better decisions than she did of perceiving things properly. So I think there's, it's a gray area. I think Lewis is trying to communicate that. Yes. I think that was the chapter entitled Christianity and Psychoanalysis. And the emphasis was all about uh, that we have different raw materials and we can't judge another's raw materials, but that we still ultimately have choices as to what we do with those raw materials. Yes, and of course, you remember the chapter title. (laughs) LeFouk says that in giving Orwell philosophy, he gave her something good, but it wasn't everything that she needed. He says, I made her think that a prattle of maxims would do, all thin and clear as water. For of course, water's good, and it didn't cost much, not where I grew up. So I fed her on words. And I think this relates to thick and clear religions, which is what Lewis talks about in God in the Dock which I think we'll probably have to postpone that discussion to either the chat with Andrew or with the retrospective, because that's that's quite a a rabbit trail to head down. Yes. But in response to all of this, and the fox's request that he stand in Oral's place, the judge responds, Peace. The woman is a plaintiff, not a prisoner. It is the gods who have been accused. They have answered her. If they in turn accuse her, a greater judge and a more excellent court must try the case. Let her go. Whoa. And in response to this, Orwell throws herself off the rock on which she's been standing, and the fox catches her. And she's surprised that he's real and warm, since Homer said that those who are dead are only shadows. And the fox replies that, well, I did tell you that the poets often got things wrong. (laughs) And there's this beautiful scene of reconciliation, because the fox asks for her forgiveness. And Orwell responds in kind, noting that the excuses he gave for his staying gloom, they were only disguises of his love. And she says that she lapped all this up like a thirsty animal. And she said, Ansit's right. I've battened, that means grew strong. I've battened on the lives of men. And the fox, he doesn't deny it. He confirms the truth of it. But he says he's glad because it means that he has something to forgive. Mm. I really appreciate this exchange. And it made me think of, I believe it was a George MacDonald character, but it could have just been like the narrator in The Great Divorce. But that, that idea that was presented that when you die, there's going to be a moment where we all have to throw our hands in the air and just say we were wrong. 
I know this is somewhat more of forgiveness, but forgiveness is essentially throwing your hands up, saying you're wrong, and then going one step further. And I really appreciated this because both parties were like, you know, I did things wrong. I did things wrong. None of us are going to get to heaven and be like, yep, I did it right. Got it. <laughs> so that's just so much. That's a part of the journey. So I, I found this very touching scene. But very quickly, there is some tension that gets brought back in in this beautiful scene of reconciliation because the fox says that he must now take Orwell to the judge as it is now the god's turn to accuse Orwell. But even then, the exchange is oh, it's just gorgeous. She says, I cannot hope for mercy. And he responds, infinite hopes and fears may both be yours. Be sure that whatever else you get, you will not get justice. Are the gods not just? Oh no, child. What would become of us if they were? But come and see. Oh. And this exchange reminds me of so many things. Jesus' invitation to the apostles to come and see in the Gospels. Uh, I think of the murderer and the self-righteous man in The Great Divorce, except the bleeding charity. And also Psalm 130, where, where the psalmist says, But if you, O Lord, should mark our guilt, Lord, who would survive? But with you is found forgiveness. For this we revere you. Mm. Wow. And the fox then leads her into a vineyard that's filled with sunshine and Oral describes it like this. She says, We were in a cool chamber, walls on three sides of us, but on the fourth side, only pillars and arches with a vine growing over them on the outside. Beyond and between the light pillars and the soft leaves, I saw level grass and shining water. And she's going to go out there in a little bit, but something else happens first. Because as they're waiting, Oral notices that the walls are covered in paintings. And then we have this sequence of images. In the first image, Orwell sees a picture of a woman coming to the riverbank. And the picture somehow comes alive like a, like a video. And the figure ties her ankles together with a belt. But with horror, Orwell realizes that it's not her, it's not her story, it's Psyche. And she's terrified about what she's doing and she cries out as though the picture could hear her. And amazingly, Psyche unties her ankles and she goes away. The fox then takes her on to a second image and this one also comes alive. And here, Psyche is in some kind of dungeon in rags and chains, and she's trying to sort out a big pile of seed into their proper heaps. And it really surprises Oral when she sees that there's no anguish on Psyche's face. There's no despair. And then she realizes that the reason is that the ants are helping her. And then the fox takes her on to the third picture, and it's a scene of the pasture of the gods. And she sees Psyche wondering how she's going to get the golden wool from the rams. And she notes that she's almost laughing inwardly at her own bewilderment. And then suddenly all of the rams charge off to the other end of the meadow because there's an intruder there. And Psyche excitedly gathers the wool from the hedge without any interference. And then she comes to the fourth image, the last one on the second wall. And in this image, Orwell sees herself and Psyche walking through a desert. And Psyche holds an empty bowl and there's a shadowy version of Orwell who just holds her complaint against the gods. And although she's pale, she sees that Psyche is merry and even singing. And when they come to the precipice, Orwell disappears, and the eagle takes Psyche's bowl and returns it, filled with the water of death. So we were right. Remember you asked this question an episode or two ago of the woman when the wool and the rams? And we were like, I think it's Psyche. Now we know. It was Psyche. Now we know. 
Is there anything you want to say about these other images? So the first one of the suicide? Yeah, so in in the, the second, third, and fourth image, it's as if they both were there. I was confused with the suicide image because it that was the exact thing Orwell did when she went to the riverbank, tied herself, hears a voice. So that one confused me a bit because it's as if they both experienced the exact same thing and were the same person. I didn't know what to make of that. I think shot through this is what I mentioned. I think it was in the last episode, Charles Williams's idea of coherence and uh, substitution and transference. Throughout all of these images, Orwell has been experiencing the same thing as Psyche, at least in some way. Mm-hmm. This little episode here, it makes me wonder when Orwell went to commit suicide, was that actually real or was that a dream? Hmm. It is a little interesting because Orwell saved Orwell from herself, sort of, too. Because remember, Orwell hears a voice and then doesn't, since it's a voice of the gods, and now we just see she was the voice of the gods. And I, I don't think she necessarily has to be the voice of the gods. I think she could have experienced this in a vision, but it's still the intervention of the god of the mountain that saves her, maybe saves them both. So do you think they both experienced this separately? That's All the other images are definitely separate, but very similar experiences, where this one, it seemed like it was the same person. I think they both experienced it, but they experienced different parts of it. But we'll get onto that bit in a moment. (laughs) All right. Uh, In the second image where Psyche is sorting out the seeds, she's helped by the ants as she is in the original myth. And Orwell, when she has her dream, she is sorting out the seeds. And at some point, she is also one of the ants. Oh, Orwell is one of the ants? Yeah. She says in her dream. Oh, I forgot this. Of course you remember that. And we see that at the pasture of the gods, Orwell provides some form of distraction, which allows Psyche to do what she needs to do. And in the desert, Psyche fulfills the original myth, going to get some of the water of death uh, when Orwell gets whisked off to her judgment. But I'm definitely getting echoes of the great divorce here because Orwell is described as this shadowy figure. She's not substantial like Psyche. But I think the, the important thing to get out of all of these visions is that throughout Orwell, she has hope as a result of her suicide rather than direct intervention by one of the gods. And throughout, she seems to be merry and happy. And at this point in the story, they've seen two of the walls, two, all of the pictures on two sets of walls. And the fox asks Orwell if she's understood what she's seen. And I remember the first time I was reading this, I went, I don't know if I did. <laughs> And the main thing that seems to confuse Orwell is, did these things happen? And she's particularly confused why Psyche is almost happy. And the fox gives her this line, another bore nearly all the anguish. And he says that this was one of the true things that he used to tell the girls when he was their teacher. He said, we are all limbs and parts of one whole, hence of each other. Men and gods flow in and out and mingle. And I'm now utterly convinced that this is coherence. This is substitution. This is... This is the, these are the ideas of Charles Williams. And, you know, it's obviously based on Christian principles, the idea of the body of Christ, that we share one another's burdens and can ca- help carry one another's burdens. And hearing all of this, it, it just fills our world with thanksgiving to the gods, which is the first time we've ever heard anything like that. Gratitude. It's a very Chesterton thing. I guess I'm asking myself right now, we're hearing this thing that Orwell essentially did a substitutionary type of love. She put herself in the position to bear the anguish. But at no point when I was reading it in real time, 
that I get the sense that she was actively choosing that. So was this an example of she she didn't realize what she was asking and the gods were giving her what she really desired, even though she wasn't? Because we, we get a picture of her jealous, possessive, need love. And this is very sacrificial, but it's not as if she intentionally chose it. Maybe she did. Here's your thoughts. She has said multiple times that she would do anything for Psyche. And she has made those kinds of statements that she would go in her place if she could. If you think about when Psyche was originally going to go up the mountain, what does Orwell do? She wants to step into her place. I remember when Bardia was sick, that she said that she would do anything, no matter what. She would go to the deepest dungeon if it meant that Bardia would have some more days of life. I think there has been the desire to sacrifice within her throughout. Does this mean she's been good this whole time? Sounds very noble, beautiful, pure. I would say it's still ultimately been disordered. Remember in The Four Loves, particularly with Eros, Lewis says that Eros can be more easily mistaken for the voice of a god because of the strength of its pronouncements. Lovers are willing to do anything for one another, and the voice of Eros seems to speak with a command. And that can lead to great sacrifice. And it can look like agape, but it's not. And when it's confused for agape, that's when things go bad. I think what you're seeing here is the redemption of the raw material of Orwell's love. I'm reminded of the great divorce when MacDonald is talking to Lewis. And he says, if there's one wee spark left, we'll blow it until the whole thing's aflame. I think what we're seeing here is the embers of the authentic part of Orwell's love being blown into a flame such that Psyche is warmed. I picture, oh my goodness, that was the image that Bishop Barron just gave in his homily today on Palm Sunday of Christ. Why did he descend into sin? Why didn't God just forgive? And it describes the scene of Christ with Pontius Pilate and all the people, crucify him, crucify him. Like He's in the heart of all of this institutional sin. And he enters into it like a bomb and blows it up. It's almost as if he gets to the core of it. So he's going into here, into Orwell, who does have this goodness in her and this good desire at the core of who she is that's been distorted and enters into it. And like you said, you use the word sets it afire, blows up everything around her that prevented that from being pure and allows the pureness to come out. Oh, I like that image. Or to use a different image from the great divorce. This is the stallion on which you rise into heaven because she is committed to having the lizard killed. You could say she committed to it earlier, and it's been a painful process of undoing it. And she's been fighting it, and we're kind of seeing that side of her that's been fighting it. But God has been killing, 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 burning, burning, purging uh, the lizard throughout this process. Mm. And I remember the words of the angel in that story. I didn't say it wouldn't hurt. <laughs> and in response to all of this, the fox asks Orwell if she would now rather have justice instead. And Orwell says that as queen, she knew that the people's cry for justice must be heard, but that her cry really shouldn't. And she compares it, she compares her own plea to that of Batter's muttering and Redival's whining. And the fox then shows her the final wall, the third wall, and on it is the fifth and final image. And he says that this is the last of Ungit's tasks. And Orwell is kind of shocked when she finds out that there is a real Ungit. And the fox replies thus. He says, All, even Psyche, are born into the house of Ungit. 
and all must get free from her. Or say that Ungit in each must bear Ungit's son and die in childbed, or change. So Matt, would you mind unpacking that? <laughs> oh yeah, easy, no big deal. I've been waiting for this moment this whole episode. So we know that Ungit has many faces. So I don't, I'm going to actually just start with what I believe is being said here. I don't think this is necessarily the comprehensive explanation of Ungit. What it appears to be saying here when it says all must get free of Ungit or say that Ungit in each must bear Ungit's son and die. So there's this, there's this something in us that has to die. There's an Ungit in us and we know it can be ugly because Orwal has Ungit, is Ungit, devouring love. We've seen that. So as I piece all that together, I get this sense that Ungit to some degree is this demon within us, this warped self, this false self we've created, and it needs to die. I'm not saying that's all of Ungit because there's other things that suggest Ungit's more than that, but I think that's what's being communicated here. Within us, there's this part of us that needs to be killed in order for us to be able to be changed. I'd agree. I think this is largely what the God meant when he said, you must die before you die. Yes. Now, can I ask you one question in this moment, though? Do you think there is a good side of Ungit? So I just painted this picture. We know Ungit has a, a thousand faces. We still hear that Ungit son, which I do believe we see later, the son, the God of the mountain, is the real final judge. So then it does say Ungit son. So is there like a good Ungit here too? I think I'm going to say yes. I'm really interested to see how Andrew responds to that question. But I think yes. I think though for the larger part, Ungit in this book is used as a symbol for our fallen selves our con- and our consuming and twisted love, because that's how she is worshipped in Gloam. Okay. I like that. We'll wait to see what Andrew or the final word. <laughs> but I don't think we've seen all of her faces. The fox then explains Psyche's task. Remember, this is the final task that Ungit has given her. Psyche is walking alone on a downward slope, and the fox says that she must go to the land of the dead and get a casket of beauty from the queen of the deadlands, death herself, and bring it back to Ungit so that she may become beautiful. So this is largely in accordance with the, the original myth. The catch is that Psyche isn't allowed to speak to anyone. And this is a little different from the myth. So the two of them watch the picture, the video, play out. And as Psyche walks towards the underworld, a great crowd appears. And they say things like, Istra, Princess Ungit, stay with us, be our goddess, rule us, speak oracles to us, receive our sacrifices, be our goddess. But she walks on. She remains undeterred. And next up, the fox himself appears in the picture, saying, Oh, Psyche, Psyche, what folly is this? All lies of poets, child. There are no dead lands such as you dream of, and no such gods. Come to me, and I'll lead you out of all this darkness, back to the grass plot behind the pear trees, where all was clear, hard, limited, and simple. And once again, Psyche walks on. And then there's a final figure who appears, a face that Orwell doesn't recognize, but one which she says inspires a tremendous amount of pity. Her eyes have been wept dry, and that she's full of despair, humiliation, entreaty, and endless reproach. And then Oral sees that the woman's left arm is dripping with blood, and that her voice is filled with passion, and she's wailing, Oh Psyche, oh my own child, my only love, come back, come back, back to the old world where we were happy together. Come back to Maya, she realizes that it's herself. 
And albeit with great difficulty, Psyche, she continues on, as Orwell says, journeying always further into death. I wasn't sure when it got to Orwell if we were going to see her derailed because when we read it real time, her stabbing her arm and trying to kill herself, in that moment, it was as if Psyche was moved by it and derailed from her mission with her husband in the palace, did what she wasn't supposed to do, was moved enough. So I was, that actually caught me off guard. I thought it was going to be the others couldn't derail her and then Psyche or Orwell did. Well, we certainly see that she is the most effective out of the other temptations. The people wanting to worship her as a goddess and the fox wanting her to forget about the gods and just stick with philosophy. Yes, which maybe goes to show love can be the most manipulative of them. Reason can only go so far, but you can manipulate someone emotionally. Exactly. But I think there's hope here because we see that whatever Orwell did, it wasn't enough in the long run. It didn't manage to take her off mission, so to speak. Go psyche. (laughs) Woo! And Orwell, she turns to the fox and says, did we really do those things to Psyche? And he said, yep, and it's all true. And Orwell says, and we said we loved her. She sees that their actions betrayed their words. They said that they loved her, but they didn't actually act like they did. And the fox explains that although they did actually love her, he doesn't deny that they loved her. He says that regardless, she had no more dangerous enemies than us. And in that far distant day, when gods become wholly beautiful, or we at last are shown how beautiful they always were, this will happen more and more. For mortals, as you said, will become more and more jealous. And mother and wife and child and friend will all be in league to keep a soul from being united to the divine nature. Wow. Yeah, here he's saying that mortal love is jealous. The natural loves, if you're thinking of the four loves, it's jealous. And... Once again, I can't help but hear the words of Christ, which I mentioned in an earlier episode, when Jesus says, I've come to set man against father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. I was in this moment, a thought came to me. So this is somewhat arguing that out of jealousy, it's hard for us to see those that we love, love something more than us. Think of a severe mercy, Sheldon Vinokin with his wife, and it was really hard for him when his wife, Davy started to really fall in love with Christ and he realized he was no longer her number one. That's like the pure version of it. But then I also think there's a negative version that's not quite as, I say pure because that's like, you're jealous that they love something else more. But I've also noticed in my own journey is I've come deeper into my faith and my heart has been transformed to be more sensitive to the love of God and to want to love him properly and to understanding his teachings and follow his teachings, not from a legalistic perspective, because this brings joy and peace and truth. And I've noticed people around me, people that are very close to me, almost try to shoot that down. And I don't think it's because they're afraid that they're losing me to God, but because there's that image itself, that idea, like when when they see you following these things that go well beyond what they hold themselves to, that standard, there's a jealousy there or almost a fear that they're now not enough and they're trying to shoot it down and almost like hold you back. In the sense that when you see, it's almost a, the way to do it in a secular perspective is sometimes when you see your friends working really hard, you want to pull them back because it makes you feel guilty that you're not rising to that same level. I don't know, that, that image came to my mind here in this moment as well, as someone falls more in love with the divine nature. Because when you fall in love to the divine nature, 
you're going to fall properly in love to what it's calling you to more and more and more. And the issue over the beauty of the gods is then what Arwal and the fox talk about. And the fox admits that he still doesn't really quite understand it. But he says that he knows that this age of ours will one day be in the distant past and the divine nature can change the past. Nothing yet, nothing is yet in its true form. Which sounds rather like MacDonald in The Great Divorce when he talks about heaven and hell being retrospective. That something about the beauty of the gods can affect our own pasts. But then the story suddenly jumps forward because suddenly many sweet Awesome voices start crying. She comes. Our lady returns to her house. The goddess Psyche, back from the lands of the dead, bringing the casket of beauty from the queen of shadows. So this is from the last picture when Psyche went down into the underworld to fetch beauty. And at this, the fox leads Orwell out into the sunlight of that grassy court that she caught a glimpse of earlier, where Orwell sees a large pool of crystal clear water. But she swiftly falls on her face and kisses the feet of the person there, which is Psyche. And she says this, O Psyche, O goddess, never again will I call you mine, but all there is of me shall be yours. Alas, you know now what it's worth. I never wished you well, never had one selfless thought of you. I was a craven. We're told that Psyche is both a goddess And yet also still somehow the same old psyche, but yet even more so, again, an echo of the great divorce. And also the end of mere Christianity when Lewis says that it's in Christ that we find our true personality. You could have almost said the end of Matt's talk. Also the end of Matt's talk, an equally important uh, offering of intellectual nourishment. I may have read the last paragraph of Mere Christianity at the end of my talk, which essentially talks about personality and only when you give yourself to Christ, you fully find yourself. That's exactly what I thought of in this scene. Psyche then bends down and lifts her sister up, telling her that she went on a long journey to fetch the beauty that will make Ungit beautiful. And I don't think it's a stretch here to say that the Ungit, which who is going to be made beautiful, is Orwell herself. But we then, something new and even greater and more awesome seems afoot. The voices then start saying, He is coming. The God is coming into his house. The God comes to judge Orwell. And Psyche then takes her to the edge of the pool and a change begins to happen within her. And this was the quote of the week. I was being unmade. I was no one. But that's little to say. Rather, Psyche herself was in a matter no one. I loved her as I would have once have thought impossible to love, would have died any death for her. And yet it was not Not now, she that really counted. Or if she counted, oh, and she gloriously did. It was for another's sake. The earth and stars and sun and all that was or will be existed for his sake. And he was coming. The most dreadful, the most beautiful, the only dread and beauty there is was coming. Mm. And I, it was one other quote I wanted to read in here right around this as as he's coming. It was very vivid image that Lewis was painting. He says the air was growing brighter and brighter about us as if something had set it on fire. Each breath I drew let into me new terror, joy, overpowering sweetness. I was pierced through and through with the arrows of it. 
So all of this here, she's being unmade. It's just the presence of him coming is piercing her like arrows. There's so much I want to say on here that I think I can save for a few minutes later from now of just the way we melt in the presence of Christ. That's where I'll leave it. And it also reminds me of the Chronicles of Narnia, when the children, they become better and more grown up and stronger the more they breathe the Narnian air. Makes you also think of Eustace, and he was trying to do it all himself, but and he couldn't do any of it. And, but then when Aslan comes, it was getting shed off him. That's also somewhat of an image going on here. And I'm sure we will talk about that a lot when we discuss the Voyage of the Dawn Treader in a few episodes. Yes! I would suggest what's happening here is that what we're seeing is what happens when the natural loves, when they become infused with the divine love. And it points also to the glory of our neighbors, as Lewis talks about in The Weight of Glory, in so far as we help shape our neighbors, but also that they are gods and goddesses. That's how she's described psyche. And ultimately, this points me back to sacred scripture, where St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being changed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Whoa, David, with unveiled face. We are transformed. And as Orwell looks in the pool, she sees two reflections, two psyches, both beautiful, one clothed, the other naked. And it's then that she hears the great voice say, you also are psyche. And Orwell looks up and she suddenly finds herself back in the palace gardens with her book. The vision has ended. Wow. And these visions, they take their toll on Orwell. And four days later, she's writing about this last vision that we've just been discussing. And she says that Arnhem has confirmed that she's near death. And Orwell wishes that her nephew, Duran, was there. So she could have taught him to love Arnhem and also the other servants. And she then writes what is the, turns out to be the final paragraph of her book. I ended my first book with the words, no answer. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer before your face questions die away. What other answer would suffice? Only words, words to be led out into battle against other words. And this makes me think of the book of Job. We've mentioned it several times this season. At the end of the book of Job, he doesn't get an explanation. He doesn't find out what happened in chapters one and two. Instead, he gets an encounter with God. We're going to talk about this in the YouTube video. But this was, this was also the end of my talk. This was a great revelation that came to me from Lewis, but also from other authors of how much I was searching for answers. I was getting this image with Nowen, with Lewis in Oxford, in the post-Oxford days of my false self, true self. And long story short, I was like, how do I get to my true self? How do I find this? Give me the 10-step plan. Tell me what to do. What mantra do I have to keep telling myself? Which therapist do I need to go see that can help unpack the falsity I've built up over my life? And then ultimately the answer came in just being in a, a allowing Christ to form within you, theosis. I mean, that is somewhat what's being said here. When you encounter Christ, when you bring him within you, that is the answer. He will undo it himself, but you need to let him in. And, oh, Lewis is just, boom. <laughs> that's boom, boom. I'm speechless. We can talk more on the YouTube video for time's sake. Well, let's end by talking about that final sentence. In the book of Oriol, she says, Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I might, 
And it's at this point, Arnhem, he concludes the book, telling us that Orwell died mid-sentence and that the book has now been placed in the temple. Matt, what did you think she was going to write? I might, what? Long did I hate you. Long did I fear you. I want to say, if she's speaking negatively here, and if, almost painting a picture of long did I hate, long did I fear you. If it had not been for this, I might have died without dying. Or something like that. I'm of a similar sort of idea, but in a little bit more of a positive spin. Long did I hate you, long did I fear you, I might have loved you. Because that's ultimately where she does end. But regardless, Arnhem praises Orwell, his queen, as being the most wise, just, valiant, fortunate, and most merciful of all the princes known in our parts of the world. He has nothing but good things to say about her. And he says that he thinks that she would have liked her book to be taken to Greece. And he says that he's charged his successor to make sure that happens. And the, the final sentence, I'm going to ask Andrew about it because it seems a bit strange because it's given as a statement, but there's a question mark at the end of it. And obviously there is a lot more that we could say about this book, but I think we'll hold that off for when we talk with Andrew and when we do our own retrospective. And I just wanted to end this episode by reading a section of St. Augustine's Confessions. Because the final paragraph of Orwell's book, and particularly the final sentence, it put me in mind of the Confessions. And also it's just a wonderful book where St. Augustine articulates his desire for God. So remember that Orwell ended with, long did I hate you, long did I fear you, I might. This is what St. Augustine said. Late have I loved you, O beauty ever ancient, ever new, late have I loved you. You are within me, but I was outside, and it was there that I searched for you. In my unlovingness, I plunged into the lovely things which you created. You were with me, but I was not with you. Created things kept me from you, yet if they had not been in you, they would have not been at all. You called, you shouted, and you broke through my deafness. You flashed, you shone, you dispelled my blindness. You breathed your fragrance on me. I drew in breath, and now I pant for you. I have tasted you. Now I hunger and thirst for more. You touch me, and I burned for your peace. I want to say things, but I also just want it to be ended on that note, because why would I ever try to say something beyond what St. Augustine could say? <laughs> At some point, you just have to humble yourself. Although we will quickly say thanks to all of our Patreon supporters, particularly Kate and Rowdy for helping make this happen. <laughs> yes, thank you guys so much. And next up, we're going to have some interviews and then Matt and I will meet for our retrospective, which will hopefully take us further up. In further in. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.